Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest from the battlefront, the future NATO Secretary General, and hear from David again from Lviv. Plus, we'll hear from Kremlin critic and author Bill Browder on Vladimir Kara Mirza's continued incarceration in Russia. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 20th of June, one year and 116 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by Maiden Nanu from our foreign desk, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, and our usual host of the podcast, David Knowles, on the ground in Ukraine. I started by asking Maidna for the latest updates from the front lines. So, overnight, Russian forces launched a major drone assault on Kyiv, and Zelensky's office said that the drones attacked the Kyiv region in several waves. So this was the first attack on Kyiv in 18 days to use Shahed drones. Now, obviously, we've seen lots of cruise missile and drone strikes over the winter on quite critical Ukrainian infrastructure, but they have become less frequent. And the Ukrainian Air Force said today that it downed a total of 32 attack drones out of 35. So, yeah, that, that was the update from overnight. Right. Thank you. Now, um, a large uh, ammunition dump has uh, has decided to remove itself from further involvement. Have you been you've been looking at that one as well? Yeah. So the second story I've got is Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, said he had called on China to use its influence over Russia more in regards to the war in Ukraine. So this was the Chinese premier's first foreign trip since he took office in March. And it's quite interesting that he went to Berlin, um, as obviously Germany and China are big trading partners. So this was the seventh time that Germany and China had held such high-level government consultations. And it came a day after the Chinese president met the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. So this could indicate an effort by Beijing to reach out to the West and improve relations with them. And... So Mr. Schultz said to China's premier that China shouldn't supply weapons to Russia and that the war in Ukraine shouldn't become a frozen conflict. Um, so that's quite good language there. So it's a, it'll be interesting to see the updates from that trip. And finally, uh, we've got some new satellite imagery uh, which showed the site of a very large ammunition dump in Russian-occupied Rykova. So these pictures so, show the destruction um, of what is an alleged supply depot in Rykova, uh, which is just south of Melitopol in the Kherson region. And Odessa's military administration said that this was a very significant ammunition depot and it had been destroyed. And elsewhere in, in southern Kherson, Ukrainian forces used drones 
to strike the Russian control town of Nova Kakova. So, yeah, that's just kind of continued news on the counteroffensive. Yeah, thanks. Nova Kakovka being the town next to the dam from which the dam takes its name. And thanks for the comment. Obviously, Olaf Schultz is not the bloated ammo dump that I referred to earlier on. He's clearly, you know, a man known known to us all. But I've seen some comments in the last few minutes from that press conference with Mr. Lee. Olaf Schultz has appealed to China to exert more influence on Russia and, uh, as you say, avoid the frozen conflict. But I think in one of these moments in life where you, uh, you know, it's a it's a, a pick your battle or pick your battle to fight moment, he didn't say anything about Taiwan. And in return, Mr. Lee spoke a lot about enhancing economic cooperation, but didn't or has yet to make any word on Ukraine. So it feels a little bit scratchy, that meeting um, to those uh, looking on from the sidelines. Tricky meeting, obviously. This is, I mean, Mr. Lee's on his, he's going to be visiting Paris after this, so he's got a hell of a week. Joe, could you give us the latest on the bits and bobs you've been working for, please, and the, and the view from Brussels? So I, I first wanted to start with reflections from my last trip. I travelled in late May, early June, so I've had a few weeks to sort of reflect and look back at my trip now. And first, I want to say it's, I think, coming back um, to civilization in Brussels, uh, what was most heartwarming to see is how Kiev has sort of grown back into one of Europe's great capitals. When I was last there in October, November last year, there were kind of these fears that the city would have to be evacuated. There were plans being put in place to do that because of uh, the long-range strikes that Russia had been launching on critical, critical infrastructure. People were worried they wouldn't have enough sort of heat to get them through the, the winter months. And so those those fears were sort of quite rightly there. But then on my most recent visit in May and June, those fears had somewhat dissipated. The streets were sort of packed and there, were a, there was a certain level of optimism. The, uh, the long winter had been weathered. Bars and restaurants were overflowing. I had to um, wait outside for 20 minutes to get a seat at my favourite Crimean Tartar restaurant in town, um, which just goes to show sort of how life has returned to Kiev. And it's just good to see that. And kind of as you move around, with those who do move around Ukraine, uh, it's starting to see that effect in other cities as well, which is, is sort of great to see. Um, on my travels, I spoke to a, a lot of soldiers, as one does in a war zone, and there were some differing opinions. Um, there's lots of motivation and that's one thing that is sort of rock solid amongst Ukrainian forces. They, they're, they're highly motivated doing their job in expelling the, or trying to expel the Russian invader. Um, there's no shortage of motivation. Um, there are obviously some fears, which again are, are quite natural and reasonable for, for soldiers to have. Some fear that it could sort of drag on into a prolonged conflict, a sort of a very attritional battle that, Kind of in the vein of the 2014 Donbass war between 2014 and the full-scale invasion last year in February, where lines are very static and it's sort of mini skirmishes uh, basically permanently going on. Um, lots of people are tired. They've, they've been fighting for 16 months now and that has sort of taken a toll on their bodies and on, on their mental health. And that's one thing that was quite interesting speaking to people about that's now a lot of people are sort of taking the, the mental health and post-traumatic stress syndrome debate a lot more seriously. Um, they kind of recognise, while it's not a priority now, because the priority is sort of getting rid of the Russians and sort of the immediate medical treatment that soldiers need if they are wounded, and civilians as well. But they're, they're kind of noting and putting in steps. There's lots of sort of psychologists and sort of mental health first aiders uh, out there volunteering and, 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 and helping people, whether they be soldiers or civilians that have been sort of traumatised by the, the war so far. Um, another emphasis, and I've, I've, I've been on to speak about this before, this is sort of training. There's lots of sort of these European-led initiatives uh, where Ukrainians are trained outside of Ukraine, um, while all well and good, um, and it's great experience for the guys that get to go on. And there's... For every sort of one guy you meet that's been on one of those programs, 10 have been trained by volunteers inside Ukraine on so, sort of more crude training programs. Um, but the big emphasis there was on sort of let's get people trained in combat medicine, basic being able to stabilise wounded troops on the front line as they're then transported back to more sort of permanent structures in, ho- in hospitals and makeshift field hospitals and like, but yeah, one, 
one thing that that really stood out to me is the Ukrainians know that they're sort of they're going to be in for a really tough fight when it comes to fighting the Russians in heavily dug in positions. They they know that on the offensive they're going to sustain more sort of casualties. Um, and that one, and then the other the other reflection is, and we, and I, I don't know how accurate it is. Other people have to sort of chime in on this, but there is different differing degrees of equipment offered out to soldiers and a lot of it is actually a soldier goes to Bakhmut with the equipment that he and his sort of family his friends can help crowdfund for um so you see lots of people sort of walking around soldiers um with sort of the latest in sort of NATO standard body armor um but then others are wearing sort of cheap Chinese stuff that is purchased off the internet and then the kind of Ukrainian basic issue stuff which is again sort of the same is not as not as protective as sort of the, the high quality stuff that costs hundreds if not thousands of pounds euros or krivna to sort of procure and that's that's interesting and you, you you see a lot of guys with sort of the these night scope night vision scopes that we've spoken about and and you ask how do you how did you get those and they were like well we were given them by a sort of fundraisers and campaigners um so that that is that is interesting to see. There's still different differing levels of uh, sort of equipment. So that's probably one thing the West can focus on. Is it's great that Ukraine is being given these sort of long range weapons, storm shadows by Britain, various air defence systems. But maybe is is there also a, a a need to look at the individual soldiers' sort of requirements? Do they need better body armour? Do they need better medical kits that can be provided by the likes of the UK, the US, and other NATO members? Because that seems to be sort of striking that there are such differing levels of equipment throughout the Ukraine's armed forces. Lovely. Thanks, Joe. Um, now, Vilnius summit in July, next uh, big NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania. The backdrop, of course, is that Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General of NATO, he's been the leader of the organisation since 2014, been extended at least twice. There has been some chat about whether or not he should extend again till next year for NATO's 75th um, sort of celebration or the, you know, mark, mark such a, a milestone. I don't think that's going to happen. The runners and riders are firming up. Um, who do you think is going to be the next NATO Secretary General? And I understand Mr Macron has taken a bit of a stand. Um, see, yeah, there is a distinctive list of runners and riders. Um, but I'm going to slightly cop out and say the next NATO Secretary General will be Jens Stoltenberg again. Uh, it looks like the most likely outcome as it stands, and by by all means, this is sort of a very fluid process. There is no formal process for electing a NATO Secretary General. Um, it looks like Jens Stoltenberg will be entrusted to guide NATO through to its 75th uh, anniversary and there's a summit in Washington next year to celebrate that moment. It looks like he will be entrusted uh, as NATO's top sort of civilian official until that moment. But there are obviously candidates out there to um, replace him and one of those is uh, Britain's Defence Secretary Ben Wallace who has said it would be a sort of a great job for him to have and he's made no secret that he would like it and Rishi Sunak has publicly backed him. But there are a few things uh, standing in his way if he actually wants to get to that point. First of all, you need to have a genuine consensus um, amongst NATO's 31 allies, maybe 32 if Sweden uh, is allowed through the door by Turkey um, on that. And one thing um, the French are pushing hard for, uh, and a lot of uh, EU countries, there are 22 EU countries in NATO in total, they want a candidate from an EU country and that is what we looked at in our story. We looked at France's long-held sort of insistence that they want a European Union-based candidate. And there are a few out there, so it's not from. But then there are also other requests and desires people want, but they might not all be out there. First of all, lots of NATO countries have expressed a desire to have a female Secretary General. Others have said it has to be a Prime Minister or a Head of State because... They might have to have the sort of the clout and the experience of dealing with a Donald Trump or a Ron DeSantis, one of these American Republicans that have kind of voiced concerns and uh, been very anti sort of NATO in the past. Um, so, but I think with Ben Wallace, there's been a lot of sort of there's a lot of admiration around 
uh, around him. It might not be in France, but lots of other people that you speak to and around NATO really respect what he's done for Ukraine and in terms of guiding NATO's response. And to look at a few points throughout the time, first of all, it was providing in-laws back in January last year, so sort of a month before uh, Russia even invaded. Britain knew it had to do something to help Ukraine, and that was by sending these in-law anti-tank shoulder-mounted anti-tank weapons um, and preparing their soldiers, Ukrainian soldiers, to use them. Then you, you, you move forward, and I think one of the... Uh, ben Wallace, is a, as a former Scots guard, uh, so he knows the military and he knows about war, he, he established that what was happening is Ukraine were being given lots of sort of these great weapon systems, but were struggling to move on from a sort of a Soviet-era doctrine, which um, kind of suggests that you should fire at will and fire as much ammunition and basically grind targets into into the ground with with sort of these long range fires um and 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 he said look we can and this was how he described it to nato colleagues he said we can we can give them the ingredients but we also need to give them the cookbook if they're to bake the cake um so he was very formative and that that is something he said in june last year um so he's very formative in the training. A month later in July, Operation Interflex started and Britain was training Ukrainian troops alongside a few other sort of NATO allies in Britain. Uh, so far, I think to date, we're around 15,000 troops trained on that programme alone and others have spawned in Poland and Germany uh, as a result of that effort. Um, then um, you look forward to the tanks, uh, again, Britain was first out the sort of the gates, the traps uh, on tanks, and that helped persuade Germany and the US that they also should sort of be sending tanks to uh, Ukraine. And then, um, then come the Storm Shadow, the um, air-launched uh, cruise missile, which has a, a sort of a range of about 200 miles. Um, and it was the first serious sort of deep fire capability that Ukraine had been handed beyond high miles which strike at about 50 miles um, and Britain was first it hasn't been followed yet but what kind of people inside NATO do credit um, Ben Wallace with is by donating that it has helped sort of end the American opposition to training Ukrainian pilots on F-16s um, and now there's this mini coalition of countries Britain the Netherlands Denmark um, looking to train Ukrainian pilots on how to fly the planes, but also on their weapon systems. And Ben Wallace has been praised for allowing that to happen by pushing so hard on Storm Shadow. But he's by far not, not by any means the only candidate out there. Meta Fridriksson, the Danish prime minister, is also a candidate. She obviously satisfies the idea that they want to have a woman in charge. Uh, a experienced prime minister of sort of five years in the job in Copenhagen. Um, there are obviously some other problems with her. France and some other countries, including Britain and the US, have said they don't want to have another Nordic uh, Secretary-General because uh, before Jens Stoltenberg, there was a guy called Rasmussen, and again, he was from Denmark. So potentially with Meta Fridriksson in the job, you'd have three consecutive Nordic Secretary-Generals, and it hands a lot of power to, to that part of the country, or that part of the world, sorry, um, inside NATO. Um, Turkey aren't her biggest fans because there's been some recent incidents of Qurans and Turkish flags being burnt in Copenhagen. Um, and that's something that President Erdogan in Turkey will take very seriously. So this, that's why we look like we're heading to Jens uh, Stoltenberg being um, extended for the time being to keep things sort of stable. Yeah, sure. I saw that when, um, when Rishi Sunak, Britain's Prime Minister, went to Washington last week, um, he was in a joint press conference with with President Biden, and and there was a question about Ben Wallace being the the, the proposed candidate and what have you, and, and all that uh, all that Mr. Biden would say was he's a very qualified individual. Hardly the the ringingest, most ringy of endorsements, but but there we go. Now, Joe, you got one other one other piece you've been working on. Um, you've uh, some comments about um, Major General Badanov, Ukraine's uh, head of military intelligence. What's he been saying? For the last few weeks, um, there have been sort of reports in Russia that Budinov, uh, this kind of war-fighting head of military intelligence, the guy who is sort of credited with lots of these mysterious 
strikes inside Russia. He's um, credited with sort of devising plans to have these Russian anti-Kremlin partisans wage war in Belgorod. Um, he is uh, subject to many att- assassination attempts um, in his time. And basically, he's probably behind uh, Zeluzny. He's probably the sort of second most important man in Ukraine's military these days. Um, but yeah, last week, um, a well-known Russian news agency was reporting that he had been transported to Germany um, for specialist treatment after he had been injured in an attack on the military intelligence headquarters in Kyiv. That attack did happen. Um, we've seen pictures of the building, was sort of charred and scarred. It was by no means uh, subjected to a direct hit and is still standing. It's just a bit sort of missile scarred and some videos suggest the video the missile actually landed in the water next to the building in the Dnipro. But yeah, so Budenov's just a really interesting and fascinating character. I urge people to sort of go and read uh, the profile online because I don't have enough time to sort of go through it all. But most recently, he is um, the last video where he was seen was on June was published on June the eleventh, and it was just him standing, sitting in his office, just staring blankly into the into the camera, not offering anything, and it was basically titled uh, Plans Love Silence. Uh, and that's going by his mantra of, we don't want to speak about what we're doing in the counteroffensive because we want to keep operational security up and running. Um, but he has since, despite these kind of rumours of him being dead and Russians sort of lauding in the fact that they might have killed probably their number one target in Ukraine at the moment, um, he has come out and told the key post today that he is alive and well, or a spokesman last week told me he was alive and well as well. But he's come up with a, a joke that he's off formulating this plan to uh, form a, an army of the immortals that's going to sort of wreak havoc on Russia and sort of plague their nightmares. Thanks, Joe. Now, as we know, there's a world that's waiting to unfold and a brand new tale no one's ever told. No one, that is, except David Knowles. David, hello. Where do we find you? And what have you been up to? Hi, Dom. Yeah, I'm here in Kyiv, um, here for another day or so, and it's been really interesting, actually. It's been really lovely getting to know the city a little better since we spent a few days here together last year. Um, a couple of interesting things for you, I think. The first thing is, well, it goes back to an incident on Friday night. Essentially, uh, me and my friend Anna went for dinner, and we thought we had about an hour and a half uh, in this restaurant. And quite quickly, the, the waiting staff came over and said, no, 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 that's not true. Sorry, you have about 45 minutes. We're very, very sorry. I thought that's rather, that's rather odd. That's not, you know, the time's given on the website, that's not the time's given on the door, all of that. Why is this relevant? Well, back at the beginning of June, um, Ukrainska Pravda, the Ukrainian language um, uh, news website, published an investigation in which they, with photos and with, I think, some video as well, showed that several Ukrainian restaurants, several restaurants in the centre of the city uh, have been serving athletes, officials, sort of local politicians, well beyond the curfew time. And they have some of these people sort of snapped, you know, in this sort of proper British tabloid style, snapped leaving these restaurants. Um, obviously, well after they should be indoors, they should be at home after, you know, with, the, with the curfew. And they named them as well. Uh, one of the names, Alexandra Nikoyak, uh, he's an official director of the Cultural Heritage Protection Department of the Kyiv administration, um, was, is one of these, several people named, he's one of them. Klitschko came straight out a couple of days after and said, I'm going to fire him, and later did. Um, why does this matter? Because this, this feels like, and I'm sure this, you know, doesn't necessarily need explaining to our British listeners, you know, local officials, politicians, bending the laws, bending what's in place at a time of national emergency. But, okay, so why does it matter? Well, we went for dinner. We were told by the staff, sorry, essentially, we're going to have to close early. We're going to have to close by 10 because the police have come around and said, you need to close by 10. And if you don't, some of you might be getting invitations to join the armed forces. So the serving staff weren't smiling about this. They, they looked pretty shaken and, and was deciding to, to, to clear out and, you know, clear up shop, essentially. And it, I thought it was an interesting story because it's not one that necessarily makes the Western news, but it's a good example of how ordinary life for people here in Kyiv has been affected by these sorts of scandals. So because of these officials' um, lax following of the, of the laws in place, it's meant that essentially everywhere now closes at 10. Um, we, we left this restaurant, went on to see if we could find a cocktail bar or something, get something else. Everywhere, everywhere was shutting up shop. Um, because of this this new decree and because of this desire to make sure that the officials were not flouting the regulations that everybody else has to follow. Again, I'm sure there are no resonances for our British audience at all there. 
Um, so that was quite interesting. Again, just it might not seem like a massive thing in in in, in the context of the, the war across you know a thousand mile long front, but it's a good example of how. I mean, the effect of it is people are really pissed off. People are really, really annoyed that they're having to follow these laws. You know, they'll be pulled over by the police and stopped and asked where, you know, where they're going, why are they out, if they break curfew. And yet you have, you have you know, local politicians, officials, athletes and so on, um, you know, not more than necessarily a handful or, or a few more, but actually actively um, disobeying these laws. And that kind of tension is quite interesting to see. I mean, we've heard from a few people talking about how, you know, politics is starting to creep back in Ukraine. And this might be, might be one of those examples. So I thought a small story, one that I had to sort of chase up some of the details on, but a good example of what daily life and sort of nightlife looks like here, I think. A couple of other things, I think, to mention. Um, you, you would have reported at the beginning, oh, there's a, there's a van going past, the Comité Internationale de Genève. It's a Red Cross van just going past us. We've seen quite a few of these, actually, in the past, over, over the past um, week reporting from Ukraine. We saw some, I saw some UN vans in Lviv. I saw a UN van um, from uh, the... Uh, well, a UN van early, earlier on sort of the other block. And here's another one. So that their presence here is noted. Um, we talked about the idea about normality in, in war. And you'd have reported earlier about the... Um, large drone strike last night on Kyiv. And just to, to give you a sense of what that kind of feels like, in the, you know, I was woken up at about 3am by my phone because we've got the, you know, the, the alert. It's Mark Hamill's voice telling you, you know, this is, this is an alert, take cover, take shelter. You can hear the sirens blaring outside. And of course, any Ukrainian listening to this knows exactly how this feels because they've lived it every single night of the past year and a half. But it's quite the, the disorientation from going from a deep REM sleep, a much needed sleep, to suddenly having to think about, well, hang on, what's happening? What do I need to know? Where do I go? In the end, I sort of went into the bathroom and closed the door because that's what you're supposed to do to two walls uh, in between, you know, sort of the outside world. And after a, you know, some minutes or so, sort of went back to bed um, once, you know, once it sort of died down. But it, it was very interesting talking to some Ukrainian pals I met this morning about, you know, what did they do? And it's, you know, the point is, this is it's been a year and a half of this. People are so tired. And People have had to learn all sorts of things that you wouldn't have to learn in civilian life. What, what, is, what are the different sorts of missile? How quickly do they, can they get to where you live? If they get to where you live, um, what kind of shelter should you be taking? How do you balance that against having you know, a healthy work-life balance? All those kind of questions that I think no civilian or nobody anywhere really should have to, should have to ask themselves. Um, and just finally, Joe talked about supplies. And I thought, it's just, I mean, going back to the sort of the expedition I was on a ride along last week with, the Ukrainian government is clearly doing all it can to equip um, the soldiers in the field. And there's clearly a disparity in terms of the types of equipment they get, the quality of it, uh, the, the quantity of it. And the volunteers, be they Ukrainian, British, French, German, wherever, American, who bring in this, this, this extra stuff, um, you, you see the gap they're filling. You can see, you know, we were sent some of the videos of what, the, you know, what they've turned previous vehicles into, be they mobile rocket launchers or... Uh, sort of ambulances. Um, oh, the dog's coming right over to us now, actually. Hello. <laughs> I think it's been quiet. But the point, the point is you can see what it means to the troops so they get the stuff, and you can see the amount of effort and expense and so on it takes volunteers to, to get them out there. So hopefully, that, I mean, that's a sort of collection of thoughts, really. Um, hopefully giving you a bit of a sense of what ordinary life feels like here in Kiev. There's just been a huge downpour, actually. So every, everywhere's damp and it's extremely humid, and people are going around their everyday life, you know, we haven't had a, a, an air alert since last night. And you wouldn't, you, know, you wouldn't necessarily know that to the untrained eye, but people are tired. They've had to live with this for a year and a half. It doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon. Um, they're trying to work out how to live, with, to live with the war and what it means, the fact that the Russian Federation can fire a ballistic missile straight to their house if it wants to. They've had to live with that for a long time. Any questions from you, Dom? I realise that was just a sort of collection of thoughts rather than a coherent narrative. Um, just one question for me: the, the the air alerts. When you get Mark Hamill's voice telling you to go and go and uh, hide in the bathroom and, and what have you, are they getting better at quickly updating those so that you don't have the whole night ruined? Because it was at the start with those alerts, they were they were going for for hours. If there was a there was something in the airspace of of Kiev Oblast, then then it would go out everywhere, and people were complaining that actually there's no need to be. Um, and this sort of led led to people not just not following the the rules. But are the, are those alerts getting? Um, getting shorter. How long were you were you hiding in the bath for? Well, I'd say I think one really important thing to bear in mind is that the alerts don't care what you're doing. You can be doing anything. You could be in a taxi. You could be walking down the street. You could be sleeping. You could be doing anything. And like then it happens, and then you've got to make a decision about where you need to get to. And I think that's maybe something that like 
you don't necessarily it's such a simple thing but it's maybe not something you necessarily appreciate like what like, like last night i was asleep so it took me several minutes to sort of wake up clear my head like think about what was going on if if an alert went went right now you know we are right next to a, a restaurant which is underground so we'd probably just go back go down there and make sure it's okay and also i think so what i'm trying to say is i'm seeing this slightly from the sort of the business end of it like i don't necessarily have access to those you know, there's, a, there's those telegrams or whatever that tell you, oh, such and such is coming. This kind of missile is heading towards this city. It'll arrive in X amount of minutes. You know, you're, you're having to make these decisions quite quickly based on the available intelligence you have, which often isn't very much. So, I mean, so last night, I believe it was about 45 minutes an hour. I think it was something like that. It might have been longer. When we arrived in Lviv, there was, a, there was an air raid alarm going on as we arrived and opened the door. That went on for another sort of five minutes and then there was silence and then the all clear sounded which is another sort of two rounds on the on on the on the siren three rounds on the siren apologies um so that wasn't so long but the, the point here is that you know we were sort of dipping out of it because you know when we were driving into Lviv, we didn't necessarily hear it open the door there it is um and then we were already at the tail end of it by that point and, and there's also a difference of course between stuff which is flying close to the oblasts um stuff which is heading straight towards the city um, there's the speed at which the different missiles and uh, drones and what have you travel. So there's all sorts of things that people are sort of trying to take into account based on incomplete, the incomplete intelligence they have. And also relating whatever that is to where they are in, in, in their life that day. Are they at work? Do they have a shelter close by? Do they not? Are they close to a subway? Are they not? Are you in the middle of the park? Are you asleep? All of those things, you know, that, that's, I think, why it's so nervy that you just don't know when it's going to happen. At any minute now, we could hear the alarms and we'd have to make a decision about what to do. And um, you, you, but the point is, I guess you can't plan for that. You can sort of have a look at where you're going. You can scope out where, the, where there might be bunkers, that sort of thing. But you also have to live your life around that. I'll just do a couple of other things that caught my eye from the, um, the diplomatic front. So Sergei Boyev, who's the deputy minister for strategic industries in Ukraine, he said that Kiev's in talks with manufacturers, arms manufacturers from Germany, Italy, France and, and others in Eastern Europe about having uh, building weapon-producing plants in Ukraine itself. So Mr. Boyev, he was speaking to Reuters at the uh, the Paris Air Show that's going on at the moment, and he said, we are in very detailed discussions with them, and we are certain that we will have the contracts agreements signed within the next few months. So this is a, a movement that's, that started in the last few months. You may remember in May, President Zelensky said that Ukraine was going to be working with British defence company BAE Systems, massive defence company, um, to set up a Ukrainian base for, uh, well, both to produce and repair uh, everything from tanks to artillery, although no no weapon, uh, no um, contract has been signed there yet. But this idea of having plants um, much closer to and indeed in the country is one that's, uh, that's, that's taking root. Elsewhere, we've got Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. He's um, uh, he's on a visit as well. What your interview with the Wall Street Journal? He's been talking about India's stance on Russia and saying that it's not faced uh, widespread criticism when the when the question was put to him. Widespread criticism in the in the US. So he was, um, like I say, talking to the Wall Street Journal, and uh, when asked about. Um, critical comments that India is not taking a more forceful stance against uh, Russia's invasion. He said, I don't think this type of perception is widespread in the US. I think India's position is well known and well understood in the entire world. The world has full confidence that India's topmost priority is peace. Uh, fine. I mean, he's on a state visit to, to the US at the moment, which the US is saying is, is a, a turning point, or well, at least critical for bilateral relations. They're going to be focusing on um, deeper cooperation in defence and high tech. Now, We've mentioned a few times India's in a very interesting place. It's thought to have benefited um, a lot from the from the cheap oil and gas coming from Russia, but at the same time, it is very uh, heavily equipped with former Soviet and Russian equipment, which it's it's seen um, underperform, should we say, uh, in many areas in the in the war. Also, very interesting the relationship between India and China. So India is is very much a, a country we, need, we do need to keep an eye on, and we need to try and uh, we need to try and. Uh, have a deeper dive. Uh, get back in touch with our with our people over there, as we did as we did a little while ago, a few weeks ago. We need to update that. And just the only other thing that I that I saw was actually it's just gone up in the last in the last hour or so from Le Monde, French uh, French publication Le Monde. They're saying that um, a, a, a defence council meeting at the Lycée Palace last Monday, so Monday the twelfth, just you know ten days ago or, or thereabouts. Um, was talking about the possibility of Ukraine joining the EU and saying this option is, is being much more seriously considered by Paris and being looked at in the guise of a security guarantee. They're saying 
that could discourage, well, I mean, could is doing a lot of heavy lifting in this sentence, but they're saying it could discourage Russia from continuing the war or um, at the end of a conflict prevent any further aggression. I think that is overblowing it slightly, um, but it is a it is a significant move if that is if that is the French position away from where they were. And again, of course, the whole, the whole backdrop here is about security guarantees and NATO uh, and where where France are. Um, I think that would be interesting. I'm not sure if a closer relationship, even membership of the EU would be seen as a, as a security guarantee. There would be others that, that might not want the EU to be taking such or be viewed in such a hard power way. Um, but that that is arguably a question for another day. One idea that I am seeing around the bazaars, um, would be interesting your thoughts on this one, is if the uh, if the conflict, if the war does calcify roughly along the lines of that it is now or or wherever if it, if it turns into another frozen conflict then you know the the idea of negotiating then has has just been utterly written off by any any serious um official from from Ukraine because they know that the the so-called peace in 2014 was just just a chance for Russia to to rearm and have a go again and they see the same situation here but if the line were to be would be utterly frozen and and very little prospect of breaking it without costing a huge amount in blood and treasure, the idea that if at that moment there's negotiations that accepts the new line and Ukraine would have to accept circa twenty percent of its country gone and Crimea, I mean huge huge decisions here. But if that was that decision was taken. And on the same day, the rest of Ukraine, the rump Ukraine, if you like, or you know, U- Ukraine that's left, joins NATO and therefore enjoys the security guarantee of, of Article 5. I wonder if that would be a very, very difficult discussion to be had in Kiev. But anyway, Joe, a scintillating final thought. I want to speak about promises. The West has made a degree of promises or always given warm words to Ukraine since Russia invaded. Um, and as we mentioned at the kind of the start of the episode... Uh, we'll be looking soon at the NATO summit in Vilnius, the 11th and 12th of July. And part of that summit is going to be security guarantees, assurances, and potentially NATO membership for Ukraine. At a summit in 2008 in Bucharest, Ukraine and Georgia were both told that they, were, they would one day become NATO members. That has not materialised. Russia has since invaded Ukraine and we're here where we are. Zelensky has basically said he will go to Vilnius, but he won't go unless he gets something concrete. He wants a promise on Ukraine's NATO membership. But if you kind of dance around the rhetoric at the moment, and lots of people like France has said, look, we support Ukraine becoming a NATO member, but no one is really setting out sort of a roadmap for that happening. So I I think what we have to look at in the next few weeks is really dive into the language of what promises are made to Ukraine and almost, well, I'm sure the Ukrainians will be more than capable of doing it themselves, but just make sure they're not promised the world and delivered uh, kind of a cheap pizza hut or any other sort of takeaway pizza rather than NATO membership uh, to kind of use a weird analogy. Because there, there, there's lots of talks around this, but are they going to be kind of given the same empty promise to 2008, which says one day you'll become a NATO member, or are they actually going to be given something concrete? And I think we have to be really sort of on that in the coming weeks. Last week, I sat down with Bill Browder, businessman and perpetual thorn in the side of the Kremlin. I started by asking him if, as a long-term Kremlin watcher, he'd been surprised by the full-scale invasion. So, Bill, thanks so much for coming in today. Has Vladimir Putin done anything or acted in any way since the start of the full-scale invasion that has surprised long-term Kremlin watchers such as yourself? Well, I think the whole thing has surprised me. The main thing that surprised me is just the unbelievable incompetence and sort of failing at every step of the way. We kind of all knew that things in Russia were hollowed out, that the corruption had taken its course and left most institutions with very little. But I think it's a total surprise to see that the Russian military is just totally non-functional, not even dysfunctional, non-functional. So how do we respond to that? And is the West, and by the West, I mean external supporters of Ukraine, which obviously includes other parts of the world, but for easy shorthand, the West, have we responded appropriately? 
Well, I think that no. The answer is no. So the response has been good in a certain way. We've given the Ukrainians weapons. We've given them long-range artillery. We've given them tanks. Now there's a real prospect of F-16s. But there's this constant feeling among the U.S. Secretary of State and other actors to say, we don't want to provoke Russia. We don't want to um, escalate. And I think this is not about provoking Russia or escalating. This is about Ukraine winning. And the sort of constant fear that Russia is some kind of force to be reckoned with, I think, has made us sort of tie one hand behind our backs and not give Ukrainians what they need to actually make this thing finally successful. And and I think that I think the Ukrainians will probably ultimately succeed at some point with whatever they have, but there'll be a lot less lives lost and a lot less money spent if we help them do it quicker and faster and more effectively. Now, the structures around Putin are so opaque, it's almost impossible to know what he's receiving. We say he might be living in a, an information vacuum because some of the, the attitudes and decisions are, are so bizarre. But do you think he would be happy with the progress as is described to him? He doesn't care about the people he's losing. And until this counteroffensive has been making incremental gains, do you think he would be happy with that? Is he being led by events? And if he's not changed his behaviour, because the external messaging is still very consistent. What should we expect from him in the future? Well, he, he's terribly upset. I mean, there's nothing worse than a strong man being humiliated. But how do you see that? What are you looking at to see that? Well, I mean, the facts on the ground. It's not as, So if we know the facts on the ground, he knows the facts on the ground. It's not like he has some kind of special funnel of information that's just totally different than what we have. I mean, he can just as easily go on the Telegraph website and, and see all the disaster that's taking place. And he can hear his own people lying to him. And he knows – everybody knows everyone's lying in Russia. So he knows that this thing is not going well. And he kind of doesn't really have a choice. It's not like he can say, oh, this is not going well. I'm going to negotiate. I'm going to back off. For Putin, there is no backing off. His entire legitimacy as a dictator, as a leader, is based on being a strong man, based on invading a foreign country and being successful in the invasion. And so his only option is just to escalate. And he can't really escalate with equipment because the equipment's just getting ground down and burned out at every step of the way. The only thing he can really escalate with is people. And as you mentioned, he doesn't care about the number of soldiers lost. And so He's sitting there thinking, okay, this is not going well for me. I can't have the Russian people kick me out because I'm a weak, strong man. My equipment is getting ground down to nothing. I can get a little bit of this and that from the North Koreans or the Iranians. I can draft more inexperienced conscripts to throw them in as cannon fodder. And he's thinking, okay, what do I do? And he's hoping and he's praying that we have less of an appetite for this thing than he does. And that at some point, we're going to tire of supporting the Ukraine. And if we were to do that, and, and his big bet is on November 20, 2024 in the United States, there's going to be an election. And if Trump gets elected, he would basically stop support for Ukraine the next day. If DeSantis gets elected, he's intimated something similar. And so Putin is just sitting there hoping that he can hold out longer than we can. Now, he has escalated in one way, in the last couple of weeks, with the destruction of the Novokokovka Dam, introducing environmental warfare, the, the international response to that seems pretty muted. And I don't see any evidence that he would take from it the idea that he could not then go and engineer an accident at the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant and maybe eventually one day resort to tactical nuclear weapons. Am I being too dr dramatic about that? I think you're drawing too big a conclusion from the lack of response to the dam versus nuclear weapons. I don't think that we all in our own minds have a sort of coordinated response to a dam bursting. That That's something that's like new. It's, it's shocking. It's terrible. But it's not like all the allies have like gotten together in advance and said, if they burst that dam, here's what we're going to do. But the allies have gotten together and said, if you do anything with this nuclear power plant or if you set off a nuclear attack, a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, here's what's going to happen. And it's been laid out very clearly to him that lots of really – unbelievably terrible things were going to happen to him. And I think that if he thought he could have gotten away with it, he probably would have already used nuclear weapons at this point. But the reason he hasn't is that this is where we draw the line. In the West, we say, if Russia is allowed to use tactical nuclear weapons, then Pakistan could use them or Israel or, or any of a number of other countries who have nuclear weapons. And if that were to happen, 
the world would basically end. And so there has to be a much, much stronger response to any idea of nuclear weapons than anything else that's being done. And I think that's been articulated pretty clearly to Putin. And I think for that reason, he's not doing it. Now, changing tax slightly, the Magnitsky Act achieved or enjoyed quite wide bipartisan support in the US and elsewhere, but the US in particular. Do you see that support holding up or has the bipartisan nature of the efforts to hold Russia to account? Do you see any, any crumbling in that group? There's no crumbling in the US Congress and the US Senate. I've been to Washington very recently. It's as strident on the Republican side as it is on the Democratic side. What you might be thinking about and referring to is that you have a couple of very small number of members of the House of Representatives, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Goetz, Lauren Boebert, who are sort of almost caricature people. They're not real. They're not – they don't speak for the conservative Republican establishment who are, you know, 95 percent of the uh, U.S. Congress and and every reasonable person that I've gone to, which makes up 95 percent of the U.S. Congress, is fully on side with Ukraine uh, against Russia. And as you say, Putin's holding out to November next year. Do you think those kind of characters are as well? Do you think they're just trying to hang in there and they think their day will eventually come? It's very hard to say what Marjorie Taylor Greene or, or Lauren Boebert are thinking uh, for November 2024. I mean, they're basically working off of a crib sheet. Somebody has put in front of them, here's how we should think about Ukraine. Here's how we should think about Russia based on some Trump crib sheet. And where he gets that, I don't know. But it doesn't represent the emotional base of the United States doesn't represent how regular people think. And it's very interesting because I can imagine a scenario where Congress may be leading on this thing as opposed to the president in the future world if Trump were, God forbid, to be coming back to the White House. Now, on to uh, Mr. Karamuza. You've criticized Britain's response. He has British citizenship. You've criticized Britain's response supporting one of its own citizens. So why is it so significant that Canada offered him honorary citizenship last week? Should we take heart from that? Or is that are they going to be equally powerless as Britain? Well, so my efforts for Vladimir Karamurza, who's a close friend of mine who helped me get Magnitsky acts passed around the world, who has risked his life to do that and is now facing 25 years in prison, is to elevate his importance among governments all over the world, not just Britain. He has a British passport. Britain should be leading on this. Britain has been very passive relative to other countries, which I find frustrating and upsetting. But I'm not going to just like, you know, knock my head against the wall if Britain is not doing what it should be doing. And he's beloved in Canada. Vladimir is someone who um, has met most of the important parliamentarians in Canada. And if Britain is going to, you know, be passive or follow then I'll find another country to lead. And, and they love him in Canada. And the fact that they gave him honorary citizenship it suggests that they're going to be much more vocal about him than perhaps Britain has been. I mean, just to give you an example, Vladimir helped pass the Magnitsky Act. The Magnitsky Act sanctions human rights abusers. And so it seemed totally appropriate that the Magnitsky Act is used on the people who have illegally put him in jail, held him hostage. The first country to use the Magnitsky Act on his perpetrators was Canada. The second was the United States. And it was only after he was sentenced to 25 years in prison that Britain, where he holds a passport, sanctioned his perpetrators. And so Canada has been leading on this, and I would expect them to going forward. And perhaps their granting him honorary citizenship might get Britain off its behind to do something for its own citizen that they haven't been doing so far. Why has Britain been so slow? It's inexplicable to me. I think basically if you have a British passport and you're taken hostage in a clearly unjust situation, you're out of luck compared to people from other countries. The United States has a whole office of hostage affairs. They have a special envoy for hostage affairs. I've met the guy. He's a former army ranger. He literally doesn't take any prisoners. He'll do whatever he can to get people out of jail if they have an American passport. Britain doesn't have anything of the sort. And um, I hold a British passport. I'm, I'm not confident that if I'm arrested in a foreign country unjustly, that this government would do anything for me. When did you last have an update from Vladimir? Do you know how he's getting on? I got a letter from him a couple weeks ago, and he, he puts on a very brave face to this unbelievable situation. I mean, he's lost, I think, 25 kilos at this point of weight. I mean, he wasn't a big guy to start out with. He had been poisoned twice using a chemical nerve agent to try to kill him after the Magnitsky Act was passed in 2015 and 2017. That poisoning caused nerve damage, and he's lost the sensation in both of his feet since he's been in, in jail. 
he's losing the sensation on his left side of his body. And I, I fear that if he's left in jail for any serious length of time, he's not going to survive. In your book, Red Notice, you said at one point the greatest achievement you'd done is buying a load of Polish stock and it going up 10 times. And then it all changed and you said your greatest achievement is utterly, utterly different. What, what changed then, if you could explain for our listeners, and how do you hold that fire still in your belly? Well, my business success story, which was an amazing business success story, went horribly sour when the Russians kicked me out, declared me a threat to national security, raided my office, arrested my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, and then slowly tortured him to death. And he died at the age of 37 on November 16, 2009. And his death, his murder, um, completely changed my life. And he'd still be alive today if he hadn't worked for me, if he hadn't effectively been my proxy. They killed him because they couldn't kill me. And I feel that pain every day. I feel it as raw today as I did 13 and a half years ago. And that's what keeps me going. And that's what keeps me pushing for justice for him and then justice for other victims like Vladimir Karamorza. And just finally, so what are you working on at the moment? What's the next steps? What are you, what are you pushing right now? Well, I think that the, the most important thing for Vladimir Karamurza is to try to find a way to get him out of jail. And I think that, that the way to get him out of jail is to find a, a prisoner, a Russian prisoner, some spy or hacker or someone like that that the Russians want back and to try to organize a prisoner swap. That's, that's how I see this thing going. More broadly, I've been the expert in freezing assets of Russians. I've been doing I, I'm probably the, the most active person in the world for the last 13 years trying to freeze their assets. A lot of assets are now frozen as a result of the war in Ukraine. And it seems the logical next step is to get those assets confiscated, the Russian assets, particularly state assets, confiscated and used for the defense and reconstruction of Ukraine. And so I'm working on that as well. I've heard that that bit of it translating freezing into confiscation and using the funds elsewhere is, is the particularly difficult bit because how do you show beneficial ownership? How do you prove who owns it? Is that the real stumbling block or, or political will? Well, there's two types of assets. There are state assets, the Russian central bank reserves, and there's private assets, Russian oligarch assets. Most of the assets that have been frozen so far have been state assets, and I think that's the low-hanging fruit. Russia committed a grave crime. We can attribute the crime to them. The crime was a crime of aggression invading a peaceful, sovereign neighbor. The damage that's been done is, is almost immeasurable. It's probably a trillion dollars. Um, we can just see the damage done by this blowing up the dam, not to mention the bombing of Mariupol. And that doesn't even take into account the murders, the hundreds of thousands of people killed in Ukraine. And so it seems to me that's where we should start first. That's an easy case to make. There are some lawyers that will tell you, what well, we can't touch that money because it's protected by sovereign immunity. But if you were to ask those lawyers, okay, what would be the way to, that you could touch that, that money? There are other legal concepts that allow the, the money to be confiscated. And, and it's more a political question than a legal question. And the political question is, can we get together with our allies? Can the United States, the UK, European Union, Australia, Canada, can we all get together, come up with a common policy towards when a country has invaded another country and caused a trillion dollars of damage so that we're all doing it in unison. And if we do it in unison, then that money can be confiscated. And there's a lot of it. There's $350 billion of it. It sounds as if from what we've been saying today, it sounds as if you, th there is a certain reticence from political will supporting Vladimir or going after these assets that a year and a half into this thing, into the full-scale invasion, should be clear by now. Do you detect a a slightly backward-leaning stance on the international stage from governments? Governments are, are sort of very tepid, very passive, very risk-averse. And that's what has been going on for 22 years. That's why Putin has been allowed to get away with all this stuff for so long. It's, it's this everybody's sort of tiptoeing around. And Putin only respects one thing, uh, and that is a boot on the throat. And everything else he just laughs at and, and uh, skirts around. And he, and. and you know, even now he's, you know, of course, they're dumping their chests and threatening us, but they're scared to death and they should be more scared to death. We should do everything we possibly can do to put Russia out of business on this thing. I'm interested in China's response to the full-scale invasion. Do you think President Xi will be at all dissuaded from following through his ambitions on Taiwan by the sanctions and other financial instruments that have been laid on Russia since the invasion? I think totally and completely. The impression of dictators, of authoritarian leaders um, over the last couple decades is that the West is 
disorganized, narrow-minded, profit-maximizing, and and don't want to get involved in any situations. Like there was the red line in Syria that Obama put out there and then and then the it was crossed by Assad and we didn't do anything. And then there's perhaps even more tragically letting Afghanistan fall to the Taliban. And all, all these things have led dictators to believe that we have no appetite for conflict, that we, we have weak backbone, and that we'll do nothing if they do things like invading Ukraine, for example. And it's definitely too little, too late as far as Ukraine is concerned that, you know, we all showed up and said, okay, sanction, 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 weapons, weapons, weapons. But, you know, if you're sitting there in China and you've seen how we have responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and you're a businessman, you're a business country, China's a business country, their whole basis is dependent on a good economy. And, And if all of a sudden China's invading Taiwan, we would all look at the labels on, on our shirts and our jackets and say, you know what, I'm not going to buy China anymore. And they don't want that to happen. And they've seen that there is actually now a real prospect of that happening. And so if Xi has been, was thinking about um, doing an invasion of Taiwan, he's put that off for five years minimum. And the way he would go about it next is, is the sort of slow boil like they did in Hong Kong, which is try to find some way where you don't have to like, you know, send – uh, helicopters and jets uh, doing stuff in Taiwan because that will cause you know immeasurable damage to his economy. But the economic impact on on us would be order of magnitude more than it has been over the sanctions over Russia. I mean, do you think we'd seriously go to the sanctions regime and and it would need to be higher if either in advance or on the event of an invasion? Well, it's it's hard to know how much stomach we have for that. But we would have certain stomach. And, and it's not just governments doing that. It's also consumers. I mean, people would be saying, OK, I'm not going to buy China anymore. Companies would be pulling out uh, manufacturing operations out of China. It's bad for business for them to do something like that. You know, they got away with Hong Kong. Nobody has, like, boycotted them. You know, we still do business with China. If they were to, to do a military invasion, there would be something. And, you know, China can't afford it right now. China's post-COVID. They're suffering. Their economy is not growing the way it used to grow. They, they need every bit of economic growth right now, and, and that's not going to come from invading Taiwan. Do you think James Cleverly, the British Foreign Secretary, has got the dial about right with this idea that he has to be pragmatic and keep the, the links and the channels open to China, engaging diplomatically whilst also, he says, holding to account and making statements behind closed doors? He's got to criticise for that. That's mealy-mouthed nonsense. Um, I'm detecting a no then. I think he's totally failing. I mean, China, China is just a, a, a more extreme example of Russia. We did exactly that. And look where it got us with Russia. You know, we have to have a firm stance. And, you know, I don't know where that comes from. But when I read that, I just like cringed. It's just like, what a coward. That's not how a leader should be behaving. And the international system more broadly, things like the international institutions, the UN, the International Criminal Court, those bodies that were set up in the ashes of the Second World War, where do they need updating? Or are they fit for purpose? They just need to be used properly. They're completely not fit for purpose. I mean, the United Nations has, you know, Iran, North Korea, Somalia, you know, Saudi Arabia is like, I think it was on the Women's Rights Council, you know, Venezuela on the Human Rights Council. It's completely absurd. It doesn't make any sense. We need a a new world order where you have, I guess what I would call law-abiding democracies. And those countries should be banding together to figure out ways in which we can put pressure on the authoritarians, because right now the authoritarians are winning. Bill Barada, thanks for talking to The Telegraph. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just a pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To all our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest 
on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Elliot Lampitt and Gemma Farrell on Twitter. The executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.